Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, great head coaches do two things. They change the culture of a franchise and maintain that culture. We continue our journey of the greatest NFL coaches of all time. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr., NFL historians, this isn't for you. This is for those who don't know as much. So we're here to enlighten, enlighten, help everybody learn. But please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm always here to learn. The Behind the Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr., presented by Billy Up Sports, the Billy Up Sports Podcast Network, BillyUpSports.com. Check us out. You can catch this show as well as other shows on Spreaker. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of those good ones. So let's get the references out of the way. Yep, got the papers in the squeaky, squeaky, squeaky chair. References, NBCSports.com, Bay Area, excuse me, ProFootballReference.com, www.DogsByNature.com, ProFootballHallOfFame.com, Athlon Sports, Bleacher Report, Wikipedia, NFL Films, The Book, America's Game, The NFL at 100, co-authored by Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams, as well as 75 Seasons. Also had a couple of articles I need to mention. 25 Greatest Head Coaches in NFL History by Aaron Talent. And then also another article by Vincent Frank. Top 50 Head Coaches in NFL History. These were written in 2021 and in October of 2011. All right, so let's get to it. Let's get to it. So there are 26 head coaches in total that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. One more is being added on this year. I'm looking at the list now, and it is a hard list to crack. But you have to keep this in mind. With me doing this series, I had to look at some things in order to tell a story about these coaches. And some of these things, you have to know where he got to start. But the question is, okay, so they're the greatest coaches of all time. Why are they the greatest coaches of all time? Well, they were great. That's not a good answer. It's not a good answer at all. You have to know what made him special, what made him great, to go along with those statistics that you can spit out at the end. Yeah, he won this many games, blah, blah, blah. But what made him great? Yes, they won games. But why did they win those games? So just in review, we had six coaches that we did on last week. And I'm going to give you to you the short version. So George Hallis, he was the founder of the AFPA or the NFL, mind you, in 1922. He was a player coach for 10 seasons, multiple positions that he held and a six-time champion. Five as the coach and once as being just the owner. 
Paul Brown, he was the innovator of the modern game. Playbooks, face masks, the cup system, the pass blocking, film study, practice squad, and uh, the draw player that happened on accident, by the way. Vince Lombardi, 10 years with the Green Bay Packers. He won five of six titles. Was in the title game six years of his 10. The Super Bowl trophy is named after him, for goodness sake. You know what I mean? Tom Landry, 29 years with the Dallas Cowboys since their inception in 1960. He had 20 consecutive winning seasons. And he was an offensive and defensive innovator. The 4-3 defense, the flex defense, also on offense, the shotgun, the motion offense. Those are the things that made him, uh, separated him from the rest. Don Shula, one word, perfect. The 72 Dolphins, 17-0. Now, not just with the Dolphins, he made championship games even with the Baltimore Colts before that. Which part, which basically played into to the fact that he was the winningest coach in NFL history, right? Chuck Knoll, Steelers dynasty. He turned a consistent loser into a winning franchise, even up to this day. He won four titles in six years. What can you say about these coaches? They did at least two things. They changed the culture of their franchises and they maintained a winning culture for an extended amount of years. Meaning what? Very, very few losing seasons. I did an honorable mention last week. Some of the names I just kind of ran through. Coaches like Guy Chamberlain, Jimmy Kunzelman, Earl Greasy Neal. I even did Weeb Eubank. Weeb, he won three titles with two teams. The only coach in NFL history to win an NFL title and an AFL title. And the AFL title was the greatest. I'm sorry, I keep harping on Super Bowl three, but that's what made him great. That's what got him into the Hall of Fame. Well, we're going to get started on our new batch of coaches. All right, kick the music. So when you say the name John Madden, what do you think of? First thing is the video game, Madden. That's what all of my nephews, as well as my nieces, that's what they think about Anytime they say the name John Madden or just it's just Madden. It's not even John. They don't I don't even think they know his first name. I tell you some other things that I think of the fact that he was a color commentator for all four major TV networks, CBS, Fox, ABC, NBC from 1979 to 2008 and winning what? I think it was 13 Emmys. And then on top of that, it's the Telestrator. Boom. You know, the telestrator, he's drawing all over the, the screen and, and doing some things that, drawing some things that have nothing to do with the game. Remember the six-leg turkey uh, from Thanksgiving? So, uh, uh, in the 22 years that he spent with Pat Summerall, what do you think about that, John? Well, you see here, this the turkey normally has two legs, and this one has one, two, three, four, five, six legs. I mean, these are the things we think about with John Madden. And even before that, or mix it in, the Miller Lite commercials and the Ace hardware commercials. Ace is the place, you know. That, those are the things that I think about. But you know what? Few knew the coach or know the coach. So let's get to know John Madden. He was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles, but because of knee injury in college, he already had one. He injured the other knee during training camp and never got to play a game. Offensive lineman. So, and uh, just as a note, 
he spent some time in film sessions during that time he was injured with one Norm Van Brocklin. You get to know him later on in some other shows, but he's a Pro Football Hall of Famer. And that pretty much was the origin of him starting the coaching aspect of his career because his playing days were clearly over. So he started off in college like a lot of other ones. In 1960, he was assistant for Allen Hancock College, junior college. He was elevated in 62 to be the head coach. In 63, he was in uh, San Diego State as the defensive coordinator with one Don Coriel. And you will hear his name plenty during the show today. Then he got his break in the pros with the Oakland Raiders in 1967. Al Davis hires him as his linebackers coach. In 68, the Oakland Raiders, they lose Super Bowl II to Green Bay. And that was last the last game for Vince Lombardi. Head coach John Roush basically left to go to the Buffalo Bills, leaving a coaching opening. Now, one thing I had no idea was about was Al Davis actually wanted Chuck Knoll, who was pretty much one of the hot coaching candidates of the time. In 69, if you were paying attention last week, that was his first year he took the Pittsburgh Steelers job. Al Davis wanted. Well, he's already gone. So he looked to his own staff. Madden was already there. And Madden was elevated to head coach. He believed in John Madden. He took a shot. And it was probably one of the greatest things that Al Davis could have done. Now, do I think no? Just could you imagine Chuck Noll being the head coach of the Raiders? Steelers fans, can y'all imagine that? That's wild. That's wild. That's wild. So he was elevated to head coach in 1969. And from 1969 to 1978, they played like champions. The winningest franchise during that time was the Oakland Raiders. But from 69 to 75, this was, those are the years that Madden coached. Just like Lombardi, he coached for 10 seasons there. Didn't coach long, but he coached long enough. But from 69 to 75, they went to the AFC Championship Six out of seven years, they kept coming up short. They were starting to be that team that was always winning all these games during the regular season. They would get to the AFC Championship and then they would lose. Now, if you go backwards a little bit, just a couple years, the team that had that stigma was the Dallas Cowboys. Yes, Tom Landry had five straight losing seasons from 1960 to 1964. But after that, they started going to the championship games after they started winning more games, right? They lost to the Browns and they lost consecutive years to the, the Packers before finally winning in 1971. They beat the Miami Dolphins 24-3 in the Super Bowl. Now it's the Raiders' turn to have that stamp on their forehead. They could not win the big one. That was the whole thought process in the media and around the league. They were great, but they just couldn't. They were good, but they couldn't be great until they won the Super Bowl. Well, then came 1976. They lost all of those previous AFC Championship games. And keep this in mind, five times they lost to the eventual Super Bowl champ. Back in 69, in Madden's first year, they lost to the Chiefs. In 70, they lost, they lost to the Baltimore Colts. Fast forward to 73, they lost to the Miami Dolphins. And then two years in a row in 74 and 75 to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, in 71, they went 9-7. and seven. 
they missed the playoffs. And 72, as a Steelers fan, do I feel bad? Not really. But that was the immaculate reception game that they lost. And that was the Pittsburgh Steelers' first ever playoff win, by the way. They lost them all. But then in 76, they ran through the league. They were 13-1, and and the one loss was to the New England Patriots, which they avenged in the AFC Championship game. The one loss was 48-17, and they got their revenge. And, of course, the drive was kept alive by a penalty. Uh, Sugar Bear Harrison, I think was his name, uh, hit on an incomplete pass. He's dri- uh, They're driving, and Sugar Bear, with his hand, hits, the, hits Ken Stable right upside the head. And a flag keeps the drive alive and gives them the first down. And Stabler eventually runs it into the end zone for the game-winning score. Then they revenge those years of losing to Pittsburgh by beating up on them, even though the Pittsburgh Steelers did not have Franco Harris or Rocky Blyer. They won the AFC Championship going away. The Super Bowl that year was in Pasadena, California. What more as a Raiders fan could you ask for? And here's another little nugget. John Madden's best friend was John Robinson. They were friends, I think, since they were children, since they were around 10 years old or or, or a little bit earlier. Robinson, who had been an assistant coach for one season for the Raiders, I think it was in 1975, left to take the USC job. USC and John Robinson had won the Rose Bowl where the Super Bowl was being played the week before. Of course, Robinson was in the building for his best friend's biggest game of his life and they won super bowl 11 going away in pasadena's rose bowl 32 to 14 over the minnesota vikings Hmm. so i mean that was a beautiful moment they finally climbed the mountain and john madden was the head coach of the first ever champions for the as far as the raiders are concerned first ever now unfortunately the next year they went back to the afc championship again but this time the Denver Broncos were in the way. They lost that game in route to Super Bowl 12. And in 78, they were finished 9-7. and And John Madden said, I've done all I can do, and I have to retire. And then that was it. So what is John Madden's claim to fame? He was the fastest, as far as coaches that won 100-plus games, right? He was the fastest to 100 wins with 103. And he has the highest regular season winning percentage in the history of the NFL. Nearly 76%, to be exact. And he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2006. The man had a lot of help along the way as well. They put together some great teams with the Raiders. Art Shell, Jim Otto, Gene Upshaw, they anchored that offensive line. And then the receivers like Fred Berletnikoff and defensive players like Ted Hendricks and Willie Brown, quarterback Ken Stabler, and the ghost himself, Dave Casper. They did their thing. They were the winningest franchise over that period of time when John Madden was the head coach for 10 years of it. And they got over the hump. He could give no more. And so when he retired, well, they had to have a replacement, right? So once again, Al Davis had to look to his own staff for a new head coach. And he hired his wide receivers coach, Tom Flores is the next head man. So where did he come from? I hadn't heard of Tom Flores until I started watching Super Bowl memories. I knew who at least John Madden was because of the video games and watching him on television as far as all the NFL games that he was 
broadcasting. Well, where did Tom Flory start? I guess I'll start in college. He was a quarterback for the University of Pacific. He graduated in 1958, but there were no NFL prospects for him because he was a Latino, a Mexican-American. I think that had a lot to do with it. In 58, he did get a shot in the CFL with the Calgary Stampeders. He eventually was cut, and in 59, he looked to the Washington football team to try to get on with them, and that didn't happen. So 1960, the AFL is born. A lot of opportunities the AFL provided for players. And not only did he become the Oakland Raiders' first ever quarterback, he was the first Hispanic quarterback in pro football history. By 1967, well, let's say, say this first. In 66, he actually had a Pro Bowl season. Even though he only completed 48% of his passes, he was a Pro Bowler. And he was traded in his Pro Bowl year. Can you say Alex Smith? In 67, he was traded to, to Buffalo. And in 69, he ended up being the third-string quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. Pretty good. He was on that Super Bowl IV team that beat the Minnesota Vikings. He would finish his career with over 11,000 yards passing and 93 touchdowns. And he was one of 20 players in AFL history to play his entire career with the AFL. So now it's time for him to start coaching. In 71, he was the quarterback coach for the Buffalo Bills. And by 72, he ended up being the wide receivers coach for the Raiders. So he did coach players like Cliff Branch. And in that 76 Super Bowl, the MVP of that Super Bowl, Hall of Famer Fred Beletnikoff. By 79, of course, he gets the job as head coach. 1980, the year after, they were 9-7 in 1979, his first year. In 1980, they were 11-5. And he would lead them to their second Super Bowl championship, the um improbable Super Bowl championship, Super Bowl 15. That was, again, in New Orleans. They missed out the first time some years earlier by losing to Denver in the AFC Championship game. And it was a rematch of a regular season uh, game with the Philadelphia Eagles. They beat the Eagles 27 to 10 in that game. So they were the first wildcard team to win the Super Bowl. And they were also the first to win four postseason games in route to a championship. That was equaled in 1997 by the Denver Broncos, by the way. And by that win, not only was Jim Plunkett the first Latino to win the MVP award, but Tom Flores was the first minority to win a Super Bowl. Now, keep this in mind, had no idea Joe Cap, the quarterback for those Minnesota Vikings in 69, while Flores was on the opposite sideline as the third stringer, Cap was Latino himself and the first Latino to start a Super Bowl. See how stuff all comes together? I like that when that happened. But anyway, fast forward to 1982, the strike year. The Raiders basically were upset in the second round by the New York Jets in the last minute. They were eight and one, and that year they actually had a bracket type playoff format. The first time ever, and I think that's, obviously that's the only time ever that they created a bracket top to bottom for the NFL playoffs because of the shortness of the season, much like what they did this year with the NBA playoffs. And they were upset. They should have been there against the Washington Redskins in Super Bowl 17. But don't worry, they got their shot the next season. 1983, Flores had his team at 12 and four. And it was actually a rematch from the regular season game they had, I think it was around week four. 
They were going up against the MVP of the league, Joe Theismann, the coach of the year, Joe Gibbs, a record-breaking offense. John Riggins, by the way, had broke the touchdown record with 24 touchdowns rushing as well as total touchdowns in league history. But the result was a 38-9 thumping in favor of the Raiders. And Marcus Allen, who was missing in that first game that they played a shootout because of a hip pointer, ran for 191 yards and won the MVP. Sweet victory. In all, Tom Flores, once he finished his career, he spent his last three seasons with the Seahawks. This was in the 90s. After leaving the Raiders in 1987, he took a front office position for one year. He ended up with the Seahawks taking a front office position there and then coming down to be head coach, something that they like to forget. Um, he was the first, he was the first actually of two to win a Super Bowl as a player, an assistant coach, and a head coach. That's beautiful. The only other one was Mike Dicker. Mike Dicker, he was a tight end for the Cowboys when they won Super Bowl VI. He was assistant for the Cowboys in Super Bowl XII when they won that. And of course, he won Super Bowl uh, XX with the Chicago Bears. 83 total wins, second most behind only John Madden in team history with the Raiders. And this year, he is going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame after a very long wait. No let up, no let up. <laughs> Coming up next, two coaches. One is in two Hall of Fames. And the other, well, let's just say he knows how to bring your team back to life. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, Team Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash teamready. Okay, we're going to keep it moving, keep it moving. A little honorable mention as we come back from break. A couple of coaches, I'm, I'm not going to go too far in depth. I can't do everybody like this. I can't. Well, maybe I can. I'm just not doing it in that way. This is the way I choose to do it. Honorable mention, Sid Gilman. Sid Gilman was a coach for the Rams, the Chargers, and the Oilers. He had six playoff appearances and one championship. His overall record was 122-99-7. Just a little bit about Coach Gilman. Not very much success with the Rams, but they made the playoffs just once and finished with a losing record under him. But following that 59 season, after he left to coach the other L.A. team, he led them to the playoffs. Overall, though, he led the Chargers to eight winning seasons and an NFL championship game win over the Boston Patriots. Pretty good stuff. Now, this is one that I should have went in-depth with. Head coach Hank Strand with the Dallas Texans slash Kansas City Chiefs. Now, we're going to forget about those New Orleans Saints years at the back end, 76 and 77. Forget that. 
That's out. All right. Playoff appearances, five. Championships, three. And his overall record, 131-97 and 10. He was named head coach of the Dallas Texans in 1960 of the AFL when it first started. And they finished with just a 500 record in his first two years. But right before they moved to Kansas City, they won the AFL championship game against the Houston Oilers. Stram would lead the Chiefs to the Super Bowl one. Yes, they lost to the Green Bay Packers. Okay. But then they also won Super Bowl four against the Minnesota Vikings in 1969. And overall, Stram, he led the Dallas slash Kansas City franchise to 10 winning seasons in 17 years. Now, here's another great one. Bud Grant. Yes, they were over between 69 and 76. They didn't win one title. But we can't talk so much like it's just so easy to get to the championship game and just win it. It's not. It's not. And this man right here is a testament. He was the Minnesota Vikings coach from 67 until 1983 and then again in 85. Four Super Bowl appearances. 12 playoff appearances and his overall record was 158 96 and 5 one of the greatest coaches in the history of the nfl in the vikings first six seasons as a franchise over under norm van brocklin the man that was a pro football hall of fame player that was sitting with john madden with that knee injury watching film they only finished 500 once and won 29 games they fired van brocklin and brought in bud grant he changed he changed that entire franchise around he coached three different decades yes they had struggled the first year and in 68 they made the playoffs of course in 69 they were in the super bowl and keep this in mind they were losing to some of the greatest teams in nfl history they lost to hank stram and the kansas city chiefs they lost to the chuck knoll and the pittsburgh steelers they lost to the 73 Dolphins and Don Shula. They lost to that 76 team with Madden and those Oakland Raiders. But he was a great coach nonetheless, period. All right, moving along to our next head coach. So the New York Giants, in their 95-year history, they were league champs eight times. Four in the NFL, four-time Super Bowl champs. 11 times they were conference champions. They won the division 16 times and made 32 playoff appearances. This is all the way up to 2020, all right? 2021, we'll see how it goes. But by 1981, they had only had one playoff appearance in the last 10 years. And the year that they had made the playoffs even well before that was back in 1963. In 1983, Bill Parcells was hired as the 13th head coach of the New York Giants. So let's get to know Bill. In college, he, was, he transferred from Colgate to the University of Wichita. He was a linebacker. And as a pro, he was actually drafted by the Detroit Lions in 64, but was released before they even played a game. So he turns to coaching. And from 1964 to 1977, he was a college assistant except for the two years that he was the defensive coordinator for Army. He actually had his first head coaching gig in 1978 with Air Force. Then came 1979. Then New York Giants head coach Ray Perkins offered him the defensive coordinator position with the Giants. He turned it down. He actually took it, and then at the last minute, he decided to take a land development company job in Colorado, which, from what I read, was the most miserable year of his life. I couldn't imagine doing that either. 
But he quickly came back in 1980. He was the linebackers coach for the New England Patriots. By 1981, he was the defensive coordinator and linebackers coach for the New York Giants as Coach Perkins offered him once again the same position and then some. Hey, do you want this? He took it this time. In 1983, he's hired as the next New York Giants head coach, right? Well, that's because Ray Perkins went to the University of Alabama to be the head coach and the AD. Their first year, they struggled. They were 3-12-1. And I had no idea that the Giants, after that season, they were looking for Howard Schnellenberger of Miami, who just came off a national championship, his first and only championship with the Miami Hurricanes, offered him that job. He didn't take it, obviously. Let's drive backwards to 1979. In the draft, the 79 draft, the Giants selected seventh overall in the first round, quarterback Phil Sims. Funny part is, Bill Walsh was one of the few that actually liked him. So if anyone knows anything about that draft and Phil Sims, he was booed pretty much out of the building. Nobody knew who he was. Phil who? Is what I the first time I ever read the story. That's that's what the headline was. Feel who? He was out of Moorhead State in Kentucky, and nobody really knew who he was. There were scouts that liked him, and one of the coaches that really liked him was Bill Walsh. Go figure. Bill Walsh actually went to Moorhead State and worked the man out, but he was drafted way before he had planned on drafting him. Quiet as kept. Walsh was going to draft him in the third round. I mean, I guess it didn't hurt he ended up with Joe Montana. So, but by 1983, as Parcells is now the new head coach, Sims has been hurt a lot, okay? His first four seasons were ended by injuries. And that year, there was a little bit of a quarterback controversy. Sims, at the end, at the beginning of the season, Parcells says, I'm going with Scott Bruner as the head coach. I mean, as the starter. That was all the way up until the point where Bruner was struggling. Sims comes in. Week six, they're playing a game against the Philadelphia Eagles. He's throwing a pass on a follow-through. He suffers a compound fracture to his throwing hand, his thumb. His bone is sticking up out of the skin. He hits the helmet of, who was a defensive end from Philly. Uh, Dennis Harrison was the guy's name. And I guess it got caught in the man's face mask. Ugh. So that was his fourth season that was ended, ended by injury. Wouldn't be his last one, by the way. But 1984, new light. You have to have your quarterback. You have to have a franchise quarterback, right? Can't nobody win without a franchise quarterback, really. Maybe once every blue moon. But Sims actually improved. I read how he changed his diet and started to basically watch film. They had him watching film. They had him change his workout. Maybe his diet did change, but he was actually changed his workout regimen to keep his body a lot stronger because he was always hurt. The blind head guy was always hurt. That year, he made the Pro Bowl. In 84, he threw for over 4,000 yards. The team made the playoffs. 85, they were 10 and six. In 86, that's when things came to a head for on, on the greater end. They were 14 and two. The Giants won Super Bowl 21. Guess where? Pasadena in the Rose Bowl against the Denver Broncos, 39 to 20 was the score, as a matter of fact. John Elway got the Denver Broncos to their first Super Bowl. And although it was a close 10-9 lead at the half for the Giants, everything just fell apart for the Denver Broncos after a fake punt. 
and they won their first ever championship, uh, Super Bowl championship, their first championship in eons. And this was on the heels of a really great defense put together by basically Bill Parcells. They went to a 3-4 system a while ago, and that means you need linebackers. And they had two Hall of Famers on that squad, as well as a pretty good Pro Bowl level player and Carl Banks. The best defensive player in football, Lawrence Taylor, as well as veteran Harry Carson. Those guys led that team. As a matter of fact, that was Phil Simms' MVP Super Bowl, where he had the highest completion completion percentage, 81%, and has never been broken. The guy was on fire that day. Fast forward to 1990, they upset the San Francisco 49ers in the championship game. San Francisco was looking to three-peat. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Thanks to Laird Marshall's sack on Joe Montana, knocking him out of the game. And also thanks to Roger Craig fumbling the football. Sound like uh, a sour 49ers fan right now, but that's the history of it. They won Super Bowl 25 against the Buffalo Bills 2019, and Parcells would retire after that. So he got them to two Super Bowls and five playoff appearances in his eight, eight seasons with the New York Giants. He turned that squad around. They won two championships. They finished that last season 13-3. and three. He won 61% of his games with the Giants. That That's coaching. That's what coaching is all about, changing this, the franchise around, changing that culture around. And that's what he was known for, reviving bad teams. Not only did he get the Giants from the toilet to the Super Bowl, he did the same thing with three other franchises. He retired, yes. He came back in 93, from 93 to 96, New England Patriots, getting the Patriots to Super Bowl 31. Yes, they lost a pretty good game, actually, to the Green Bay Packers. The New York Jets, they were stinking it up as usual. From 97 to 99, he was there. He got them to the AFC Championship, losing to who? The eventual Super Bowl champion, Denver Broncos. And then there was the 03 to 2006 Dallas Cowboy run. Should have been three playoff appearances. They only went twice. And with the quarterbacks that he had at the time, I think that was pretty good. 2005, they missed it by one game. They fell to just nine and seven. But in total, 19 years of coaching, he only had five losing seasons. That's it. The book, the Big Tuna was the only coach to take two different teams to the playoffs and three teams to the conference championship game. He was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2013. And again, he only had two Hall of Famers. Not 12, 11, 13 like some of these other coaches. Pretty good stuff. NASCAR fans, y'all know what Joe Gibbs racing is, right? Yeah, Joe Gibbs, the team owner who made the Hall of Fame in 2020, the 11-time champion in the NASCAR Cup Series, Xfinity Series, and Daytona 500, all of those combined 11 times, right? Some may remember, the younger ones will remember when he was the head coach for the Washington football team from 2004 to 2007. They made the playoffs twice. But his Hall of Fame career was built on the first 12 years he was the head coach for Washington from 1981 to 1992. So where did he start? He was a quarterback for San Diego State. For who? Don Coryell. I told y'all y'all going to hear this guy's name a lot. He was also the offensive line coach under Coryell from 64 to 66. Same squad. 
in the NCAA, he also coached with the Florida State Seminoles. He was with John McKay at USC, Frank Broyles at Arkansas. Any of these names ring a bell? They should. But by the pros, when it's time to go to the pros, he was a running run backs coach for Coryell with the St. Louis Cardinals, offensive coordinator for John McKay. Man, these guys loved him. And then back he's with Don Coryell again as the offensive coordinator with the San Diego uh, Chargers. And they had a record-breaking offense eventually, right, with San Diego era Coryell, right? 1979 to 1980, those two years, they were just getting it really going good. Dan Fouts, Kellen Winslow, John Jefferson, Chuck Muncie, and Charlie Joyner. These guys had a great offense. I can't name you one person on defense, though, for those San Diego Chargers teams. Eventually, I will. But by 1981, one Jack Pardee for the Washington football team was fired. He, of course, played in Super Bowl VII against the undefeated Miami Dolphins team and eventually found himself as the head coach for Washington. Jack Cook Kent. Jack Cook Kent. Jack Kent Cook hired Gibbs in 1981. They went 8-8 eight and eight that year. Okay, cool. 500 is not bad. It's better than what we had then. 1982, the strike season, they went 8-1, and one, just like those Raiders did in 82. But they went on to win Super Bowl 17 against Don Shula and the Miami Dolphins. 1983, Gibbs had that team humming. They were 14-2. They were pretty much the best team in the league. And the two losses that they had were by a combined two points. The top offense, they had a record, being NFL record for points. They scored 541. Defensively, they forced 61 turnovers. And in week five, by the way, they had a game against the Oakland Raiders, excuse me, the LA Raiders by then. Al Davis had moved his team. They beat the Raiders 37 to 35 in a shootout. But like I said earlier in the show, there was no Marcus Allen in that game. He had suffered a hip pointer and could not go. This team was loaded. They had all pros. Of course, the MVP was Joe Theismann. They had all pros and pro bowlers. Joe Jacoby, Jeff Bostic, Russ Grimm, a part of the Hogs. Dave Butts, Mark Murphy on defense. They had John Riggins, who scored 24 touchdowns that year in the Pro Bowl level, well, Pro Bowl receiver in Charlie Brown. Art Monk, Hall of Famer, he was on that squad as well. Super Bowl 18, it wasn't even a game, though. And Gibbs' team suffered a rout, 38-9. The game was over early. But, hey, that's, that, it happens. It happens to some of, the, some of the best of them. Some go undefeated in the Super Bowl and some don't. But they did get there. And it would take him not that long to get back. By 1985, he had to hit the reset button, Gibbs did. In 1985, Joe Theismann suffered that career-ending broken leg, courtesy of one Lawrence Taylor, as the bone was sticking up out of his leg on Monday Night Football. He broke that leg. His career was over with. Two years later, in 87, you had the strike season. This right here tells you all you need to know about a coach even by the end of his claim to fame. They had missed week three, I believe, that season. Okay, so the owners were prepared a little bit more for this strike, more so than in the 82 year. They used replacement players. And with those replacement players, Joe Gibbs led them to a 3-0 record. Now, they finished the season 11-4. 
Then there was the big Jay Schrader, Doug Williams back and forth controversy. Doug Williams, of course, he was the quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in the day. He even got the Bucs to the cusp of the Super Bowl back in 1979. It could have well been the Pittsburgh Steelers playing against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Super Bowl 14. They lost the game. It was just a game of field goals. But eventually, and we'll get into Doug Williams' life a little bit more in a later show, but he overcomes some serious, serious um, diversity during this 87 season. Ended up becoming the starter for the playoffs. Jay Schrader wasn't happy about it, but I think I would have rather Doug Williams been the quarterback too. And with the help of an elite defense, they were number six in the league. That went, they went all the way to the Super Bowl. But before they got there, keep this in mind, the San Francisco 49ers, they were actually the favorites to win it all that year. They lost in the first round to Minnesota. It was an upset. Washington beat Minnesota, went all the way up to the wire. Matter of fact, if you go back and watch the game, Hall of Fame cornerback Daryl Green swats a player away from, swats a ball away from Anthony Carter, inches from it being caught for a tying touchdown. They were going to win that game 17 to 10. The Super Bowl, though, was way different. Super Bowl 22 at first looked like it wasn't going to be uh, very good for the Redskins, well, excuse me, for the Washington football team. As Doug Williams twisted his knee somewhere between, I think it was in the beginning of the second quarter. But boy, when that man came back, Super Bowl records, they fell a plenty, or they were tied that day. 42-10 win against the Denver Broncos. Five records were set, seven records were tied. Doug Williams, he was the first African-American quarterback to start a Super Bowl. They ran for 304, he threw for 340 yards and four touchdowns all in the second quarter. Timmy Smith ran for 204 yards. That was a that was a coaching job for Joe Gibbs. Joe Gibbs, he knew he it's not always just the head coach. It's the head coach plus the staff. But with Joe Gibbs leading that squad, I don't know too many other coaches that would have done the job. Once they lose their starting quarterback or they have those kind of issues, it normally doesn't happen. And keep in mind that John Elway, just he wasn't just some quarterback. He's a Hall of Famer for a reason. And matter of fact, that was their second Super Bowl back-to-back. And they would go again in two more years. But they ran through Denver that day. And by 1991... Gibbs had his team in the Super Bowl again. They had an 11-0 start in route to a 14-2 record, and he had a third quarterback at the helm who was an MVP level. He was playing at MVP level that season, Mark Rippon. He was waived. He actually watched the Super Bowl four years earlier in San Diego when they beat Denver. They go on to win against the, the Buffalo Bills. They beat the Buffalo Bills 37 to 24, and it was 24 to nothing, 16 seconds into the third quarter. Mark Rippon was the MVP. Three different teams he took to the Super Bowl, Joe Gibbs did. And he won the Super Bowl with three different quarterbacks. That is Joe Gibbs' claim to fame. He was the coach of the year three times, 12 years. His record, 124, 60 and 0. 16 and 5 in 21 postseason games, a winning percentage of 0.683. And then you had the other four years, you add that on to give him a total of 16. 
He was 154 and 94 and only had three losing seasons. Only three. In 96, the year I graduated high school, he was enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And guess who presented it? Don Coryell. <laughs> Coming up next, you simply cannot keep greatness down. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, Team Ready. Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, hey, I'm no settler, I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. All right, we're back. We are going to wrap this thing up. Honorable mention, our last one for this show. We're going to start with that name we've been hearing all show long, Don Coryell. Of course, he was the coach for the St. Louis Cardinals as well as the San Diego Chargers, which we know him best for. Playoff appearances, six. His record, 111, 83, and one. The Eric Coryell offense that was that basically revolutionized offensive football in the NFL in the late 70s and the early 80s. That's what we know him for, Don Coryell. During that time, Dan Fouts, he threw for over 4,000 yards in three seasons in a row. And we know that San Diego didn't win much in the playoffs. They never even had a Super Bowl appearance, by the way. But they were constantly in the playoffs. They were constantly a challenge. Additionally, he had a 69-56 and 56 record as the Chargers head coach. So the man was great, a great offensive mind. He had many pupils on the team as well as <laughs> head uh, coaches, assistant coaches throughout his tenure as a head coach. Uh, moving on to Dennis Green. Denny Green, one of those San Francisco 49ers coaches that came from a certain tree we'll talk about later. The Minnesota Vikings coach was there from 92 to 2001. We're not really going to talk about the Arizona Cardinals years later on. 04 to 06 playoff appearances eight his overall record 113 and 94 he had great success as a head coach mostly regular season and again he was one of those coaches that really didn't get it done in the playoffs but he had that one great year in 98 where the Vikings were 15 and one they should have been in the Super Bowl against the different Broncos it just didn't happen didn't happen but he had a really good he had really good teams on a consistent basis not a hall of fame head coach but a great head coach nonetheless he had playoff teams all the time they they had a great organization but they just was one of those many teams that did not break break through everybody doesn't get to win they just don't next chuck knox 
We know him for his two stints, really, with the Rams, but more so the 73 to 77 years with the Rams. He did coach for the Buffalo Bills and the Seattle Seahawks. 11 playoff appearances, overall record of 186, 147, and 1. Of course, from 73 to 77, the Rams were 54 and 15 under Chuck Knox. Ground Chuck, the running game, right? And they made it to three AFC championship games, but they lost all three of them. Get on the cusp and never got over. Now, the name we've constantly he uh, heard with the Colts, Carol Rosenblum was then the owner of the Rams by that time. Well, Knox signed the first million-dollar contract in football history for coaches by leaving the Rams and moving on to the Buffalo Bills. Two of his five seasons, they made the playoffs, but another falling out, this time with Ralph Wilson, the owner, and then in 1983, he ended up with the Seattle Seahawks. Mike Dicka. Chicago Bears. He's synonymous with the Bears. We understand the New Orleans years, but throw that out. I'm sorry. I have to throw that out. You don't really think about that, like Michael Jordan with the Bulls. You don't think about the Washington Wizards, right? Mike Dicka, the Bears. Seven playoff appearances, one Super Bowl title in 1985, a record of 121 and 95. Fiery head coach wearing his emotions on his sleeve. But Mike Dicker, the one-time Hall of Fame tight end and assistant with the Dallas Cowboys, won Super Bowls. Again, we talked about this earlier in the show. He and Tom Flores, the only ones in NFL history to win a Super Bowl as a player, assistant coach, and a head coach. In 1982, Dicker was hired to take over for the Chicago Bears. Initial seasons, they went 11-14, the first two. They turned it around. By 1985, they're winning the Super Bowl. One more head coach, honorable mention, Dan Reeves. We know him with the Broncos. He did have a stint with the New York Giants, but he also got the Atlanta Falcons to a Super Bowl, the Dirty Birds. Nine playoff appearances, four Super Bowl appearances. He will go down as one of the greatest head coaches to never win a championship. Overall record of 190, 165, and two. He went to the Super Bowl and won as a player. He was uh, an assistant coach for years and then ended up being head coach of the Denver Broncos. And he got John Elway and them boys to the Super Bowl three times in the 80s. Uh, didn't end well that last one, 55 to 10, lost to the 49ers in Super Bowl 24 in New Orleans. Great coach. Great coach. He led teams with two winning records, 12 times and they won double digit games nine times and won their division a total of six times so we move on to the final coach born and raised in los angeles this coach would spend the majority of his career mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing chumba casino this year i was only playing for fun so winning this was a dream come true chumba casino is america's number one social casino experience it's serious fun with over 80 casino style games to choose from you too could win life-changing amounts of cash be like mary log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Mike. And we're Team, Team Ready. Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is. So they want you to be ready. 
It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com slash team ready. On the West Coast, Bill Walsh. You don't know anything about Bill Walsh other than his 49ers career? Well, here we go. He went to San Jose State, graduating in 1955. He was also a gold glove boxer. His first head coaching job was in high school for Washington High School in Fremont, California. He moved on in 1960 to coach along with one Marv Levy at Cal Berkeley. Also in college, he was at Stanford as a defensive backs coach. Then he transitions into the pros with none other than Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders as the running back coach. He only spent one year there in 67. He ended up being the head coach of GM back in San Jose for the San Jose Apaches of the Continental Football League until they went belly up and folded in 1968. Then later on in 1968, a man by the name of Paul Brown, who we know was fired back in 1963 by the Cleveland Browns, right? Well, his off-season home was in California, so this man was very familiar with Bill Walsh. Thought of him as a great offensive mind, and so he hired him when the AFL Institute, well, basically drew in yet another professional team with the Cincinnati Bengals entering the league in 1968. Paul Brown is partial owner and he was the GM, of course, the head coach. He hires Bill Walsh as that assistant coach on offense. Well, later on the next year in 69, they had drafted a quarterback by the name of Greg Cook. Now, Walsh was calling plays and was an assistant to Paul Brown. Remember, Paul Brown was a guy who had control, wanted all control, and that was why he took the Cincinnati Bengals job in the first place, much like his first stint in Ohio with the Cleveland Browns. He ran it all. Of course, by 1970-71, Bill Walsh was running things. Let him call all the plays, right? Well, before then, in 1969, that West Coast offense would be developed. Here is his origins. They drafted a coach by a quarterback by the name of Greg Cook. Now, this guy, if I believe everything that I've read and the things that I've heard and things that I've seen, this guy was a 6'4", 200-pound version of not necessarily Cam Newton, but he was a mobile quarterback who had a serious arm. But the third game of his rookie year, they're playing against the Kansas City Chiefs. He gets sacked driven into the ground and basically suffers a shoulder injury that turns out to be a torn torn rotator cuff that goes undiagnosed he finishes the season playing great but he ends up not being able to play in 1970 and eventually it in that shoulder injury ended his career before it even really got started well the backup was named Virgil Carter this guy was also mobile he was accurate but he did not have the same arm strength. Kind of reminds me of another quarterback that Bill Walsh record with coach later on in his career. So Walsh and Brown, they had to go into the lab and develop what would become what would become the West Coast offense, which basically 
is incorporating a short passing game that got the ball to receivers quickly, incorporating the running backs and fullbacks as well as the tight end in this system. And a Virgil Carter type offense like this where he didn't have to worry about going long so much, he actually led the league in completion percentage in 1971. They had drafted Ken Anderson in 71 and eventually Anderson would take over as the starter but this offense was getting the ball out of their quarterback's hands quickly it was very effective and their offense by 1975 was living on top of the world just about they were one of the top passing offenses along with Isaac Curtis being that Pro Bowl receiver that he became in 75 the Cincinnati Bengals would go 11 and 3 as Paul Brown was in his final season as it turned out as head coach and he would retire from coaching at the end of that year after their loss to Oakland 31 to 28 in the playoffs. Paul Brown retires and this is where this the whole story gets interesting. When he retired Walsh being the offensive guru that he had become everybody thought that he was going to be the next head coach. Apparently not because Brown gave the job to Tiger Johnson instead, the offensive line coach. Never mind that the offensive line struggled a majority of those seasons. You wonder why they didn't win championships or get to the Super Bowl. Well, part of the reason was their offensive line wasn't good enough. I mean, quarterback-wise, they knew that they had a system that was set up for success and they got the ball out of the hands of the quarterbacks because arm strength, right? At least with Virgil Carter. Well, the offensive line was playing pretty poor too. I probably have to put that on the GM, Paul Brown. But this offensive line coach ended up with the head coaching job that Walsh thought that he should have had. He wasn't happy about that. So, as I read, Walsh goes up to Paul Brown's office, says, look, I'm out of here. I want to be a head coach. That's what he's thinking. Clearly, I'm not good enough for you. So, I'm out of here. Paul Brown is livid. He's not happy about that. He's like, no, you can't go nowhere because you're still under contract. Walsh says, ah, and I'm out. I'm just paraphrasing basically what happened. And he did leave. Well, quiet as kept. Apparently, during the years that Walsh was the coach, the offensive coordinator, teams, like you know today, call and they inquire about your assistant coach's services. Of course, they had to go through Paul Brown. Paul Brown, either said no or dirty gave him a bad review basically ran basically said he's not a head coach he's not good enough to be a head coach so he had some opportunities that he seriously missed out on in the years that he was there in Cincinnati and even afterwards basically Paul Brown continued to do these things blackballing him from the league that's crazy he was passed over by at least four teams that were named. The Jets, the Seahawks, the Rams that were right there up under his nose in California, as well as the Green Bay Packers that were also named. All of these negative reviews, obviously that affected him, but there was a reason for it. I don't like the reason, but there was a reason for it. it seemed to me that Paul Brown wanted to hold on to him for himself. Brown, why would Paul Brown do that? Paul Brown, if you remember the shows that we've talked at least last week when we talked about the military mentality that these coaches had the 
tough guy mentality. Bill Walsh's approach was not that at all. He was an intellectual. Now, could he be tough? Of course. You would find that out later on in his 49ers career. He did get tough with players. And to a degree, it kind of cost him. But Paul Brown didn't believe that he was tough enough to be a head coach. He thought that Tiger Johnson was. That's why he gave him the job. And that's exactly what drove a wedge between Walsh and pretty much a guy that he looked up to. Keep this in mind. Walsh was in college while Brown, Paul Brown is winning all these championships. The team of the 50s. I mean, he knows football. He's very aware. And the guy that you looked at it, looked up to and looked up as, as being one of your not just thinking that, he, all right, I'm one of his protégés. I'm working with this man. And I looked up to this man. And he's bad-mouthing me behind my back? That's dirty, Paul Brown. That that was dirty. I didn't hear that enough, to be honest with you. But, okay. So, you know, favor it gets you to a place with some people where you're not going to say some things on camera. Maybe I just haven't heard it yet. But he ended up going in 76. Walsh did to become the offensive coordinator for the San Diego Chargers in 1977 to 78. He was the head coach for the Stanford Cardinal. 79 breakthrough. Eddie DeBarlow Jr. just fired his head coach and hired him as the 49ers, not only the head coach, but the director of football operations. Obviously, he ended up having more hands-on duties as the career went forward as being more of a GM role uh, for Walsh but in the early years, it was a struggle. They had come off a 2-14 season. Their first year, Walsh and the 49ers were 2-14. In 1980, they improved to 6-10. Steve DeBerg was the quarterback. In 79, as we talked about earlier, yes, Bill Walsh liked Phil Sims more. He ended up with Joe Montana. <sighs> Not bad, right? And he ended up switching them out midway through the season, and the rest is history. 1981, everything comes to fruition. They not only have Montana and Dwight Clark, who was also in that 79 draft, they brought in Ronnie Lott via draft, Eric Wright, defensive back, Carlton Williamson, defensive back, and then Fred Dean and Hacksaw uh, Reynolds from the, what was it, the, the Los Angeles Rams. So they, they had a nice core to go along with Randy Cross and couple of others that were already on that squad and they just improved and they got better and better as the season went along and eventually they ended up in the NFC Championship against a uh, game against who? The Dallas Cowboys. Of course that game they won 28-27 and the play the catch, Dwight Clark right? Very very interesting to find out that that play, sprint right option was actually a Paul Brown play from the 1950s. That's pretty cool. And it worked. It got them that that uh, NFC championship. And keep in mind that the game wasn't actually over after Dwight Clark scored that touchdown. Dallas got the ball back, I believe, with around 51 seconds back, uh, left after a squib kick. Um, Danny White completes a 31-yarder to Drew Pearson, and they're 10, 15 yards away from kicking a field goal to win that game. After a timeout, sack fumble on White, 49ers recover, Montana kneels down twice, 
ball game. They're in Super Bowl 16 against, guess who? The Cincinnati Bengals. So obviously there was a lot there, a great pregame story being there were former players that Walsh had coached as well as coaching staff and not to mention Paul Brown is in the press box up in, in the uh, in the box, right? The 49ers 13-3. The Cincinnati Bengals 12-4. The Bengals go down. And it was, it was a beautiful thing for Bill Walsh to defeat his old team as well as Paul Brown. Now, obviously, I never heard him say anything about it. But look, he wanted that game. And the 49ers wanted that game for him. Just like on the other side, I'm sure the Bengals wanted that game as well. But that didn't that didn't work out for him. In 84, they go to their second Super Bowl. They finish with a record as far as their, their, their final record of 15-1 in the regular season. They only lost to Pittsburgh in week six, seven, supposedly on a bogus call. That gave Pittsburgh another chance to, to, to throw a touchdown pass to John Starworth. But they go to Super Bowl 19 and they dominate pretty much a home game for not only the 49ers, but for Bill Walsh at Stanford Stadium of all play, places in Palo Alto. 38-16 over Miami. Don Shula and the record breaker himself, Dan Marino, who threw 48 touchdown passes to uh, set the new touchdown pass regular season record. 1987, though, you fast forward, they were the favorites. The 49ers were the favorites. Walsh had his team right. They were ready to go and win it again. Not so. They were favored 13-2, but they never got there. They lost, were upset by the Minnesota Vikings in the first round. But the next year was his last year. He only coached there 10 years. It's the quality, not the quantity. To this point, they had too many first-round playoff losses according to Eddie DePartlow and the team. He was not happy. But at that point, they had removed that title from Bill Walsh and just said, you're just the head coach. Although they were saying, well, you still have some, some responsibilities and a little bit of control over the roster, even though they had put Carmen, Carmen Policy in that same kind of role. Then there was the Montana, Steve Young debacle, the quarterback, quandary controversy going back to that nfc divisional playoff game the week before the year before in that loss joe montana was pulled by bill walsh and they put steve young in they scored some points when steve young came in but obviously they came up way short the next year they were in and out they they would start steve young they would start joe montana eventually via mike holmgren who spoke on it they finalized and said, look, Walsh said, hey, we're going to go with Joe Montana because the coaching staff said you need to pick a quarterback. They did. And after that, they had started the season in 88 rough. They were 6-5 and five at one point. Montana ended up being the quarterback. They finished 10-6. and six. They won five of their last six games to go on to Super Bowl 23 in Miami, which proved to be the final game for Bill Walsh. He went into that game with a lot of pressure and a lot of things that, that had went on in that season where it kind of turned some of the players against him. We'll get to that in a minute. In the playoffs, they did get their revenge on their way to the Super Bowl against Miami, I mean, against Minnesota. 
34-9, they beat them down. Then they go to Chicago, beat them 28-3 in that cold. 28-degree, uh, 28-degree, negative 28-degree chill factor. That It was really cold. It was. In Super Bowl 23, they're against, guess who again? The Cincinnati Bengals. They were down in the fourth quarter with 3-10 left to go, 16-13. And this time, the head coach is not Forrest Gregg, whom he faced back in 1981, the Packers legendary lineman. It was his former quarterback coach and third-string quarterback that he was over back in Cincinnati in the 70s, Sam Weish. He was the head coach. Three minutes and 10 seconds away from a championship, the 49ers drove 92 yards. You know about the drive. That West Coast offense pretty much took over. Jerry Rice, he won the MVP that game. A record 215 yards receiving and a touchdown and a record tying 11 catches. Montana to Taylor, three-step drop, 10-yard touchdown pass. That was the only catch Taylor had that entire game to secure the win. The defense did the rest on the uh, ensuing kickoff. With 34 seconds left, they had scored, and the final score basically was 20-16. That was Walsh's last game, and he retired after that. And the crazy thing is, the next year, of course, the 49ers go back again. George Seifert is elevated to head coach. They win Super Bowl 24. They dominate in the regular season before that, 14-2 record, 55-10 against Denver. Still a record to this day, but the players had turned on Bill by then. There was some animosity, even with Eddie DeBarlow Jr., with the way that everything happened in the, uh, after the season and even the seasons going towards that, before that. There were some changes because Bill Walsh was doing some things that they did not exactly like. And it, some of it included the quarterback issue along with other things. But before he died in 2007, they did reconcile, which was a great thing to hear. But it's just ironic to hear that just as Paul Brown had been ousted in Cleveland back in 63 because of a rift with the owner, Art Modell, and all the players like Jim Brown, the same thing happened years later to his protege, who ended up becoming a dynasty head coach of the 80s. Bill Walsh had the exact same issue. Thank God, everything. I don't know how it ended with Paul Brown. He passed away in 91. I have no idea. But what I do know is that his players and the owners and the 49er organization, they speak glowingly about this man, even to this day. One day I've got to find that book that he wrote that's so hard to find. I actually saw it on Amazon for 500 and something dollars. I don't have that kind of money laying around. But um, and, and it actually showed, I mean, after he retired, it wasn't totally from football. From 92 to 94, he did return to Stanford. And then in 96, he ended up going back to the 49ers organization in 96 as an administrative aide. And then he was the GM from 99 to 2001. But in his 10 years, the genius, he dominated. In his 10 years, they had seven winning seasons and made the playoffs every one of those years. 102 and 63 and one was his record. Six NFC West titles. He had five Hall of Famers, 81 Coach of the Year, and he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1993. Not to mention back in 87, 
he started the Minority Coaching Fellowship, which basically you have a sport that's dominated by white coaches and men. Now you have more women as well as other African-Americans, other ethnicities that are being included in this coaching uh, as far as the NFL is concerned. There's a program that you can go through. It's bad that we have to have one of those, just to be honest with you. But the fact that he's had it and it's become, you're seeing the effects of it even to this day. That's a great thing. That's a great thing. So, all right, so that's a wrap. Um, other than that, I mean, you know what? I almost forgot. His coaching tree was really, really great. Yes, he had, not, not all these guys had the same level of success as him, but when you have coaches like on your staff like Sam Weiss, George Seifert, Dennis Green, Mike Holmgren, Ray Rhodes, and Mike White, and they produce coaches like, and I mean, say what you will as a fan, but you had guys like John Fox and Jim Fossil that went to Super Bowl. Uh, you also had Sean Payton, who's a Super Bowl winner. John Harbaugh, Super Bowl winner. You know, those coaches branched off of these coaches. Andy Reid, Kirby. <laughs> Steve Mariucci, John Gruden, Tony Dungy, Brian Billick. Even Jeff Fisher got close. Gary Kubiak, he was pretty decent. Dick LeBeau, great defensive, a Hall of Fame de uh, defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, so what was Bill Walsh's claim to fame? He was an innovator. He was an intellectual. The West Coast offense and then having the coaching tree that he had, that was just amazing in itself. He was a coach that did turn a team around and change the fortunes of a team in the 49ers that were terrible before he got there. They had never won a championship in 34 years, but they did in 81, in 84, in 88, as well as 89, not to mention 94. So that's Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh, he was a meticulous, detailed teacher, as well as a great, that basically led to him being a very, very sought after and a great head coach. Some of these coaches that we're talking about, they had some really, really good coaching trees, but I think that that's pretty amazing when you watch that. And truth be told, Paul Brown just added to his, he really did, even though he wanted to put his forehand on Bill Walsh's forehead and keep him for himself. All right, that's the show. So next week, we're going to have part three. The and I might have to add one more. I'll let you guys know next week uh, <laughs> if I'll go ahead and do one. Because I, I, I have to, I'm bringing it modern. We're hitting these 90s and then these 2000s. And then we're going to talk about some of these minority coaches as well. Uh, the history of that as well. So not everybody's a Hall of Famer. But we need to talk about these guys. They need to get their shine. That's the show for today. Y'all know where to find me, the Behind the Mic Podcast. I'm Michael Neal Jr., your host, presented by Belly Up Sports, Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, bellyupsports.com, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Tell your friends, tell your wives, tell your husbands, listen to this show, tell your kids, or I'll find your house. I'm out.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 